In case you missed it, we're starting a new series this morning <laughs> called The Supremacy of Jesus in Hebrews. And this morning, uh, my message is Jesus Supreme Overall. Uh, this series, again, is going to be a 13-week series where we're going to look at different snapshots or pictures of Jesus uh, in the New Testament book of Hebrews. Perhaps uh, no other book in the Bible lifts up the person of Jesus in Hebrews. We're not necessarily going to go through every single verse, but what we are is we're going to hold Jesus up uh, as a church uh, in the next couple of months here uh, and the reason for doing that is if you're falling on your notes, here's the big idea uh, of this series. You're going to hear this sentence probably every week, so you might as well get used to writing it now. If Jesus is supreme, which we're going to discover he is, if Jesus is supreme, then he deserves our whole life. That's the goal of this series, to show that because Jesus is everything we're going to learn he is, he deserves nothing less than my whole life. In fact, that is what he has called us to, Right? as his disciples. You see, if we're not careful as people, we can be in danger of giving our lives away to lesser things than Jesus. Sometimes uh, these are even good things. It reminds me, many of you have probably had this experience with your kids or grandkids or young uh, children where Christmas time comes along. You pick out the perfect present. You meticulously wrap it up. It's under the tree. It's ready to go. Christmas morning comes, your kids go, open up the present, and later on in the day, what are they playing with? The wrapping paper in the box, right? They kind of miss the whole point. I mean, we put all this effort and time in the present, and in a similar way, the author of Hebrews does not want us to miss the present for the wrapping paper. Jesus is supreme. One of the reasons we felt led uh, as the leaders here to do this series is a couple Last year, we did a survey as a church. You remember, we've been talking about that. And overall, we were just overwhelmed uh, by how so many of you are, are satisfied with what's going on here, grateful to be here. I include myself in this. I just It's such a privilege to be a part of this church family with you. However, the person who did the survey with us made this statement that really stopped us in our track. She said, people's satisfaction with your church is so high that your challenge will be to make sure they don't love your church church more than they love Jesus. What a heart-stopping moment, right? I mean, we can love good things, good things like our church. There's other great churches as well to love, good things like Bible studies and, and so, thing, so forth, but we've got to make sure we're not loving the wrapping paper instead of the present. And the present God has given us, the gift that God has given us is Jesus. And for these 13 weeks, we are going to hold him up as supreme. Now, before we dig into the first text for us this morning, we're going to, let me give you a little bit of background on this letter to Hebrews. I got to tell you, there has been no letter in the Bible that has met, done, had more background research done to it than the book of Hebrews. Uh, because there's so much diversity of opinion, uh, especially about one thing, however... Most scholars agree that the, the, the theme of this letter is what we were talking about. It's the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The thing that has been, uh, had different opinions about it, it's, I can't even mention the number of pages that have been, been written on this, is who's actually written this letter. You see, there's no signature, so we don't know who the author is. Is it Paul? Some people think it's Paul. It's similar to some of the things he's written. Uh, perhaps it's Barnabas. Perhaps it's Luke. Others have postulated. Maybe it's Apollos. You've heard of him, perhaps, in the New Testament. Some have even said, maybe it's Priscilla and Aquila who, who wrote this. The truth is, we don't know. And I agree with the third century church father Origen, who said, 
Only God knows certainly who wrote this letter. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Those uh, who put together the canon of Scripture uh, put this book in there because it fit within the parameters of that. So one of the uh, things that scholars do agree on, though, is the audience to who this was written and the purpose it was written. There's almost no question that Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians, probably sometime around 64 AD, whose world was falling apart. Their world was falling apart. They had come to believe in Jesus, even though they had never seen him in person. However, what was happening is that their conversion had started to bring them persecution and ridicule and hardship, and they were in danger They were in danger of going back to their old way of faith. Many believe, in fact, this was probably written to the Roman church during the reign of Emperor Nero. And for any of you history buffs out there, you know that Nero wasn't so kind to the Christians. In fact, he persecuted them heavily. And so the result of all this persecution, perhaps, is that this church began slipping back into their old way of life, into their old faith, and abandoning their faith in Christ. Now, This context I bring up is important because it's not so unlike where we find ourselves today. We may not be being persecuted to that extent. In fact, of course we're not being persecuted to that extent. However, the reasons for their persecution remain the same for us today. You see, these Christians were making exclusive claims about this person, Jesus. They were saying he was the ultimate, superior revelation of God, right? He was God come in the flesh. And they were living in a pluralistic society, much like ours here today, who teaches, you know, there's all kinds of gods, there's all kinds of ways to heaven, there's all kinds of religions. And so for these people to be making these exclusive claims about Jesus, it wasn't very welcomed. They didn't like it too much, and so the persecution began. It would have been much easier if they would have just said, Jesus is one way, not the way. Does this sound at all familiar to where we find ourselves today? So what, I want to know, does the writer of Hebrews say to those who find themselves in this situation? What would he say to us today? Would he say, compromise a little bit on who Jesus is? Blend in with the rest of society. Concede. Have a form of Christianity, but one that doesn't offend anyone by its exclusive claims. Would you just tone down the supremacy of Christ already? Of course not. Of course that's not what he writes. The whole purpose of this letter, if you're following on your notes here, is that Hebrews encourages us to fix our eyes on Jesus' supremacy. It holds up Jesus like no other. If Jesus is supreme, the author is going to get across, and he certainly is. He is worth your life, even if it costs you your life. Don't you dare back off the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's the message of this letter. And with that, we come to the very first words of this letter, Hebrews 1, verse 1. I'm going to invite you to turn there. Uh, Right now, if you don't already have that open, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we invite you every week to take one of the black Bibles in the seat in front of you there. Follow along. Be a first-hander in God's Word. We're looking at page 838 in those Bibles. If you're getting used to your own Bible where things are, Hebrews is almost near the end. Of course, Revelation is the last book. Start turning to the left, and you will eventually find Hebrews 1, uh, verse 1. And i got to just say, this section we're going to be looking at this morning sets the whole stage 
for this series. It sets the whole stage of the book. It lifts up Jesus as supreme overall. In fact, can I just prepare you to be overwhelmed this morning? What the author is going to do, it's almost like that story I shared at the beginning about the present, right? We've got to remember the present. It's like the author is going to pull out this gem, this, this gem, uh, this present. He's going to lift up Jesus Christ, and he's going to show us all these different facets of his supremacy, just how amazing he is. In fact, there are, we're going to see 13 ways Jesus is supreme. You probably can see that on your notes, and you're going, oh man, we're going to be overwhelmed. We are, because the author wants us to see the supremacy of of Jesus Christ in all things. So let's start by looking at chapter 1, verse 1. He doesn't waste any time. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Let me pause there. He starts off by just explaining, you know, as Jewish Christians, God has spoken to us in the past in many various ways, right? He spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai through thunder and lightning and the sound of the trumpet. He spoke to Elijah on Mount Horeb through the soft, still whisper. He spoke through multiples of his prophets that he sent, right? I mean, in different ways, totally. I love looking at this. Ezekiel spoke through, was informed by visions. Daniel was informed through dreams. Amos gave direct oracles from God. Malachi used questions and answers. Have you read Jeremiah? He spoke by using bizarre symbolic acts. It's a really interesting uh, thing God has him do to reveal himself. Haggai preached sermons. I like him. In Zechariah, God employed mysterious signs. The point is what? The point is what? God has always had a desire to communicate with his people. However, he has only in the past been able to do it in bits and pieces, right? He has never been able to come in his full form. He's never revealed himself fully until now. Until now. You see, the author says, in Christ, God has spoken in finality. If you're on your notes with me this morning, the incarnate Jesus is God's final word to us. There's no more bits and pieces. He's the ultimate revelation of who God is. God has spoken once and for all in the person of Jesus Christ. I love how John puts it in his gospel. The word became and made his dwelling among us. God has communicated to us once and for all who he is. I kind of think about it in the difference between talking to somebody on the phone and talking to them face to face. I mean, have you ever talked to someone again and again on the phone? You've never actually met them and then you meet them and it's sort of like, oh, now I see. Well, in the past, God has spoken to us in the phone, over the phone, but now in his son. He has come to us in person. The author is starting off by telling us he's not just another prophet. He's not just another messenger. He is God in the flesh, and he comes to reveal God himself. He comes to reveal God himself. He is the final word. And as God's final word, we are going to enter into some of the richest, most striking words in all of the New Testament about Jesus. This is where he really holds up this gem and shows us all these different facets of what we learn about God through Jesus. Look at the rest of verse 2. It says, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. And now read verse 3 out loud. Would you on your notes with me? It says, 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In these two small verses, we have seven clear descriptions of Jesus as God's final word. Let's walk through some of those. Number one, it says Jesus is inheritor. If you're following, he's the inheritor or the heir, H-E-I-R, of all things. This description of Jesus clearly points back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, where God describes the anointed one, the Messiah, who will inherit all the earth. And the Messiah has come in Jesus, and he takes all things upon himself. He is the heir of the galaxies, of the universe. And yet, let's boil this down to a micro level. I want you to imagine this. What is his greatest treasure? What is his greatest treasure? It's, it's not all the galaxies and universes. It's us. He came so that he might inherit us. He offered his life for the purification of sin so that we might become his treasure as his followers. He is not just the heir of the heavens and the earth and the galaxies. We are his richest treasure. We are his richest treasure. We are worth more to him than the universe. Friends, that's why he came. It's why he came. Number two, Jesus is creator, we see here. Jesus was the agent in whom and through whom the entire universe of space and time was created. That includes things we see and things we don't even see. John's gospel starts with these powerful words reminding us of of this facet of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16 says it this way, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is creator. Following that, though, number three, Jesus is sustainer. He is sustainer. I get that from verse 3. Not only does he create the universe and then leave it on its axis to spin around. I mean, you have that picture, right, of Atlas holding up the dead weight of the world. Is that how God is? No, no, no. God is sustaining the world right now. He is actively engaged in our world, leading it towards its final purpose. Colossians, again, chapter 1, verse 17 says, He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together how does he do that how does he hold creation together we'll look at again at verse 3 in hebrews just by his word that's how powerful he is he is creator he is sustainer he holds the world together by his word number four jesus is the radiance of god's glory the radiance of god's glory Some of your translations might have the word reflection there. Radiance is a a much uh, better translation of the Greek word there. It's it's as different as talking about the difference between the moon and the sun, really, right? The moon reflects light. That's how we see it. It reflects light. The sun radiates light because that's the source of light. And in the same way, Jesus doesn't just reflect the glory of God. He is the glory 
of God. I've been reading in Exodus uh, lately in my, in my daily uh, Bible reading, and you know, one of the things that's always been amazing to me is, you know, when the, the nation of Israel uh, comes out of slavery from Egypt, all of a sudden this fiery cloud appears, right? You've read about the fiery cloud in the daytime. It looks like a pillar of smoke at night. It's definitely a fire, and this fiery cloud is leading the nation of Israel. At one point, you know, the Egyptians are chasing after them, and the cloud goes behind the nation of Israel, and the Egyptians cannot get past the fiery cloud. Later, they come to Mount Sinai where they receive the law, the Ten Commandments, and this cloud just makes its presence upon the mountain. And they're warned, don't even come close to the mountain because this cloud is appearing, this cloud is is coming, and you'll die if you get near it. Later in Scripture, the, the cloud comes back again when Solomon dedicates the temple. All the people are standing around the temple when all of a sudden the cloud appears and makes its presence in the temple and the people hit the deck in worship. What is this cloud, friends? What is this fiery cloud that shows up in Scripture? Do you know? It's the glory of God. It's the glory of God, and just like the sun, I mean, we can't sit here and stare at the sun, otherwise it'll burn our eyes out. People couldn't couldn't stare at the glory of God. It was God in all His majesty and glory and holiness and eminence. And it was just a form of God, and yet people could never glimpse fully into it. They'd hit the deck until now. In Jesus Christ, we're told, not only has God revealed himself fully, his glory has become known to us, but you can know it personally. It can come into your life. The glory of God can take residence of, not just in the temple, but in your life, in your heart, in Jesus. God has made himself known. The glory of God has been revealed once and for all. It's in human form, and it can transform your life. Have you seen it? Have you seen the glory of God? Do you know it? Closely related to number five, Jesus is the representer. The representer. I'm not even sure that's a real English word. It says there in verse three, did you see that? He is the exact representation of his being. What is that saying? It's saying Jesus is God. The word being in Greek means the very substance of God, or if you like, the very stuff of God. I mean, he's the stuff of God. And then exact representation, it was used in these times to express a sort of an imprint or an image. Think about a coin, right? You have an original image that you imprint upon that coin, and now we have the exact representation of the image and it's saying here in Jesus we have been given the visible imprint the visible expression of the invisible God God has made himself known he has made himself known I mean you wonder what God is like look at Jesus how does God relate to us as people look to Jesus what does God think how does God act look at Jesus look at Jesus he is the exact representation of God. I love how John puts this again in John 1.18. Can you read these words out loud with me up on the screen? No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. I'm going to say this next part slow. 
No one can know God apart from Christ. Because unless we know Christ, we don't know God. No one can know God apart from Christ because unless we know Christ, we can't know God. God has revealed himself fully in Jesus. Sixth, Jesus is purifier. Did you see that there in verse 3? He's our purifier. I mean, let's just stand back for a minute. We've talked about some amazing things so far, haven't we? God has come in the flesh and revealed himself, his glory to us fully. We can know who God is in person, and yet that's not even the most amazing thing. This God who has revealed himself then did what none of us could ever do for ourselves. He took upon himself our sin. He took upon himself death and suffering. And for those who trust in the gift that he has given us in his sacrifice, we can be purified. We can be made new creations in Christ Jesus. And it says, I love this, uh, when Jesus accomplished this, when Jesus accomplished this, it says he sat down at the right hand of the Father where he now sits as number seven there on your notes as king. Jesus is king. We're going to see a lot more about this later in this series. The idea behind this is a priest who offered sacrifices in the Old Testament never sat down. They would never sit down. Why? Because their work was never finished. Their work was never finished. And sometimes I felt like in my life, right, my work of trying to prove myself to God is never finished. But Jesus cries out from the cross once and for all, it is finished. And he sits down in all his glory at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns as king even now today. He is God's final word. Amen? Now you'd think that'd be enough. Like you're dismissed. Jesus is supreme over all, right? But the author's not done yet. The author's not done yet here in chapter 1. The writer isn't done proving the supremacy of Jesus. He now begins to compare and contrast Jesus with the angels. And at first this week when I was looking at this text, I'm like, what's the deal here with comparing Jesus to angels? I don't understand, you know, the connection. Well, remember, as I learned here, the Hebrews are being tempted to compromise their faith in Christ. And one of the things that was perhaps happening is that if they were simply agree that Jesus was an angel, perhaps the greatest of all angels, they would have been welcomed back into the Jewish faith, into the Jewish synagogue. And that must have been a really tempting, tantalizing offer, right? Because in one way, you're not totally dismissing Jesus offhand. You're just making a different claim about him. It doesn't take much for me to identify with that temptation today. I mean, the world scoffs when we say Jesus only. Jesus only, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So we still hear messages of compromise. Well, do you really have to say that? I mean, I'll agree Jesus was the most moral man who ever lived. Or he was the greatest, perhaps greatest teacher who ever taught. Or, you know, Jesus is a wonderful example of the kind of life we can lead where we can sacrifice our lives uh, on behalf of others. But please, don't say Jesus is God, that he is the way to God. But the writer will have none of that. We'll have none of that, right? In fact, in the rest of chapter 1, we're going to look at this. He quotes seven Old Testament passages to prove not only is Jesus superior to angel, angels, but he's superior over all things. Because you want to know why? He is God. He is God, and that is where our faith rests. 
Even angels can't match the glory of God. I looked at angels this week because angels are a pretty popular topic today. When you say, say you can go to the bookstore uh, and there's all kinds of th- things written about angels. And I got to confess, I, I don't know a lot about angels and I feel like I should know more. I learned several things about them this week from scripture uh, about what they do. Angels help carry out God's work on earth by bringing messages to God's people. I mean, we've all, you know, seen that when the angels come to Mary or, or whoever. I also learned they protect us, they offer us encouragement, they give us guidance, they carry out punishment on behalf of God. I love this one, they patrol the earth. Think about that, even now, angels are patrolling the earth. They carry believers to their eternal dwelling place upon our death, and they fight the forces of evil. We know as well that angels will be God's agents in the final earthly judgment and the second coming of Christ. I mean, would you just agree angels are pretty awesome? They are pretty powerful. I mean, they wield terrific power, and yet, in comparison to Jesus Christ, they dwindle. They dwindle in comparison to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. In these five verses, the author gives five ways Jesus is supreme, even over angels. First, Jesus has a superior name to angels. He's been given a superior name to angels. Look at verse 4. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. There are lots of names for Jesus in scripture, aren't there? Can you name a couple of them? What are some of the names of Jesus? I can think of a lot. Emmanuel, wonderful counselor. Mighty God, Prince of Peace, we sang some of them this morning already, right? The Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. All kinds of names are given to, to Jesus. He is the name above every other name, but the name here that is given to him that is above even the angels. You see it? It's the name Son. He is Son of God, the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And he is a much superior name to the angels. No angel has or ever will be called God's son. Number two, Jesus has a superior honor to angels. Look at verse six. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. What honor do you see right there that Jesus has that the angels don't? What honor does he have? He is worshiped. He is worshipped. In fact, who worships him? Angels. Even the angels worship him. Now, let me get on a little side note here, soapbox. You need to know that a lot of cults will take this word right here, firstborn, and warp it into meaning that Jesus didn't exist beforehand. In other words, it's, that means, right, he's the firstborn, that he was the first created thing. So he's a created being, not the creator. But I'll just say to you a couple things. First of all, the word does not mean Jesus was created. In fact, often in Scripture, firstborn is simply referencing somebody who is supreme in rank or privilege. The one who is set above, set as the one above all else. So for example, in Exodus 4.22, look at what God calls the nation of Israel. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn. Born son. Now understand, if you know history, Israel was not by any means the first nation. 
There were many nations that existed before them. However, God had called them out among the nations to have a special privilege, to have a special rank among the nations. Later in Psalm 89, we get a description of David called the firstborn king. And if you've read 1 Samuel, you know David was neither the first king nor was he the first son of his family, right? He was the seventh son. What is that saying? God is saying about David that he has placed him in this position of rank and authority. And in the same way, when it says that Jesus is firstborn, it's not talking about whether he was created or not. It's talking about his supremacy. He is supreme over all things. Now, besides all that, I mean, you're going to hear people say that. I guarantee you, the longer you live, there are going to be some arguments about that. But besides all that, Let's remember again, what honor does Jesus have? What was it? He's worshipped. Okay. You've read the Bible, perhaps, and you know that who is the only person that is worshipped? It's considered blasphemy if we worship anyone other than who, friends? God. And yet we read right here, Jesus is being worshipped by the angels. What does that tell us? What does that tell us? It tells us Jesus is God. Remember Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra, and they're doing all these amazing miracles, and all this incredible stuff's happening. What do the people there do? They fall down and start to worship them. And are Paul and Barnabas like, yeah, this is good. This is good. No. They're like, get up. Stop worshiping us. Worship is for God alone. Or how about the Apostle John? Twice in Revelation. He's just so overwhelmed by the greatness and power of angels, he starts to hit the deck and begins to worship one of the angels, and they're like, no, get up off the floor. That is reserved for God alone. Friends, what we're in right now this morning, what Hebrews is really all about, it's about Christ's deity, isn't it? It's about the fact that Jesus is supreme because he is God. Listen, we can agree to disagree over a bunch of things with believers and other people as well, right? For the sake of unity, we can agree to disagree. But when do we ever stand up and take a stand? I just had a friend write me not too long ago. It's like, I'm kind of tired of Christians who feel like they have to say everything about something. You know, when do we take a stand? When is the right time to say something? We're on it right now. Right? We're on it right now. The deity of Jesus Christ God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If we don't have the deity of Christ, we have nothing. Why are we here? Listen, this is the centerpiece of our faith, and I'm sorry to say it's what makes it impossible for us to say all religions eventually lead to the same road. Even other religions wouldn't say that, right? I mean, listen to the Koran. The Koran says that Christ was no more than a messenger and we are blasphemers for worshiping him as God. I respect that. Because they understand only God should be worshipped, right? And so for us to claim to worship Jesus as God, that's blasphemy to them. Or how about Christian science? In their definitive book, Science and Health, they say straight up, Jesus Christ is not God. The founder, one of the founders of Jehovah's Witness says, the phrase Son of God refers to Jesus as a separate created being, not as part of the Trinity. As the Son of God, he could not be God himself. The founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, said, I quote, Christ is the firstborn spirit son in the eternal family. He advanced and progressed and became 
like the Father. That is, Jesus became God. And of course, Mormonism teaches that we can all become God. And Jesus was the firstborn among many in that process. The Baha'is say Christ was not God. Unification Church says Jesus is no different from other men. Unitarians say we can't regard Jesus as a supernatural creature, as a literal son of God. Friends, it's sad to say, perhaps you've already witnessed this, there are churches who now say we need to back away from the literal interpretation of the incarnation that Jesus is God in the flesh. But that is what our faith rests upon. That is when we speak up. We don't do it arrogantly. We don't do it pompously. Oh, I wish people stopped doing that. We do it with grace, but we do it with conviction. This is what we believe. Jesus is supreme over all because Jesus is God. It's why we gather to worship. It's why we say that's the honor he deserves. It's why we come here, to lift up the name of Jesus as supreme over all, as God come in the flesh. Jesus has a superior honor. It's worship. Are you worshiping him the way he deserves? Third, Jesus has a superior status to angels. First, the author talks about the status of the angels in verse 7. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. That's kind of a cool description. Like angels are like wind and and fire. But I have a question for you. How much control do wind and fire have over where they go? None. The same is true with angels. They do what God tells them to do. They're not autonomous beings. They are, what's the word? Servants. They're servants to God's purposes. However, look at the picture of Jesus in verse 8. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. How awesome is that verse right there? Look at it again. God the Father, speaking to God the Son, calls him what? Your throne, say it, O God. Hugely important text. It's a direct claim. No casualness on this point for us, right? Jesus is God, and as such, if you're following on your notes, he has authority. He has authority. Angels have no authority. Jesus has all the authority. I love, I've been reading through the Gospels as well, and I love, I agree with what Tim Keller says about the deity of Christ here. I love this. He says, sometimes it's not even the direct claims that hit me. Sometimes it's something offhand that Jesus says. For example, there's a place in Luke 10 where Jesus is talking to his disciples about the casting out of demons. They were talking about people they saw who had demons, and out of nowhere, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What? I mean, here they are just having this conversation, and all of a sudden, Jesus is like, yeah, I was there before the material universe even existed, and I saw Lucifer go bad. Okay. Okay. Listen. C.S. Lewis was dead on when he said we either worship him as Lord or he was a lunatic or a liar. There is no other option here. There's no other option here. What do you believe? What do you believe? His authority is further described in verse 9. He has a scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. I love this description of his authority. He has a seat of authority, his throne. He has a symbol of authority. He holds a scepter, and he rules his, with this authority. What kind of king is he going to be? 
I mean, is he going to be vengeful? No, he rules with justice and righteousness. And it says, I love that last part, joy. He rules with joy. That's the kind, that's the kind of God I want to worship. That's the kind of God I want to worship. Fourthly, Jesus has a superior existence to angels. Existence. Verse 10. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. Listen, just like you and me, angels are created beings. But if you're falling on your notes, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. He was there in the beginning. He'll be there for all eternity. It's like what Brian quoted later in Hebrews, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And I have to imagine, if I was a part of this church undergoing this suffering, this persecution for my faith, this must have felt like rain, right? That's right. These persecutions are just momentary afflictions for what awaits me in eternity. What awaits me in eternity. Finally, Jesus has a superior position to the angels. A superior position to the angels. Verses 13 and 14. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Angels serve Jesus rules. That's his position. He rules. He reigns. Does God ever say to an angel, hey, sit at my right hand? Never. Does God ever say, well, I'm going to make your enemies a footstool before you know, but in Philippians 2, we read one day, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. Jesus Christ is Lord. You know who's going to be a part of that? Angels. Good angels and bad angels are going to recognize that Jesus is supreme over all. And if that's the case, I love the next words the author says in chapter 2, verse 1. Can we read them out loud on your notes there? He says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. If you're following, if Jesus is supreme over all, we must pay attention to him and not drift away. And not drift away. Remember the purpose of this letter? The purpose of Hebrews is to highlight Jesus as supreme because there were these Christians who were thinking about turning their back on their faith. We will probably face the same thing in our lives if we aren't already ridiculed for our beliefs. But the danger of all that, listen, I love that word there, it's of drifting away. What an interesting word. Literally, it means to flow by. It's just flowing by. I think of a, a ship unanchored, right? It just sort of drifts. And I think that's a pretty good description of where many of us find ourselves today. We just sort of drift in our faith. We just kind of hope, fingers crossed, I'm going to reach the destination God has in mind for me. Drifting can happen in any number of ways. This all of these have happened to me, friends. I'll confess. We can become careless or complacent in our devotion to Christ. We kind of put it on the back burner, right? Or maybe over time we backslide into a sin that we had formerly rejected. Or maybe we compromise our morals or our beliefs in order to fit in better with the culture. Or honestly, maybe we just become lazy. Maybe we just become Sunday morning Christians who 
no longer are actively engaged in showing and telling the gospel to this world who hungers for it. We just sort of go along with the flow, hoping we'll get to where God wants us to get. But these verses serve as a warning that many of us need today. I need this. I need to be reminded, right? I've got to watch myself from drifting. I've got to watch myself from drifting. Uh, This lesson was really brought home to me in college. I went to a school that was right by the ocean. And so one of the things I used to love to do is I would go swimming in the ocean. And so I'd start, I'd get onto the beach, and the first couple times, uh, this is what I would do. It takes me a while to learn things. You're going to notice I'm kind of dense this way. Uh, but I would get into the ocean, I would pick out a buoy that was going to be my destination, put my head down, and I would swim in what I thought was a perfectly straight line. And after swimming for a long time, thinking, okay, surely I'm about to the buoy, I would finally lift up my head, and I'd look, and the buoy would be like 300 feet to the left. Well, What happened? The tide had drifted me towards the right. It took me a couple times to learn I had to keep my eyes fixed on that buoy the whole time I was swimming. Look up, look up, look up. Am I going to where I'm supposed to be going? Friends, are you drifting right now in your faith? Are you drifting right now in your faith? If Jesus is the inheritor, the creator, the sustainer, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, if he is your purifier, if he is king, if he is greater than even the angels, I encourage you and I encourage myself, let's fix our eyes upon him as our destination. He is the prize. He is the present. He is the gem that we are seeking after. He is supreme over He is supreme over all. Friends, I urge you this morning to look up. Look up. Look up. Keep your eye on the prize. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never even gotten in the water. And you sense that God has been speaking to you this morning. He is revealing himself to you. He is calling to you for a relationship. Well, let me encourage you today. Don't put that off. Invite him into your life. All that takes is turning away from your old life and receiving the gift of salvation. The very purpose, the very reason he came was to offer you life and life to the full. Let that happen today. Today could be the day of your great joy and gladness. He wants to inherit you. It's why he's came. Look up. Let's fix our eyes upon Jesus. If you're following on your notes, here's the question. If Jesus is supreme over all, Will I give him my whole life? Will I give him my whole life? Let's pray. Lord, how can we thank you for this rich text you've given us this morning? In it, you have revealed that you are supreme over all and you deserve everything we can give you. You deserve our worship. You deserve our devotion. You deserve our whole lives. And so, Lord, for those of my friends in this room right now who have sensed maybe they've been going through a time of drifting right now, encourage them this morning, God. They can look up to you, fix their eyes upon you, the author and perfecter of their faith. And for any friends in here this morning who have not yet made that decision, Lord, if you're nudging their heart, I pray that they would see your grace is available and waiting for them. Speak to them. Open up their hearts. Let them come to you. 
with gladness. And if they want to do that, Lord, I just pray that they would maybe come speak to one of us down front after this service. And now, Lord, we have the privilege of singing about Jesus, the one who is supreme over all, and we do it with glad hearts. Amen.